Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. It is Friday, October 31st, 2014. Happy Halloween. I would love to introduce our guest today. Um, and she is the author of a book called The CEO Difference, How to Climb, Crawl, and Leap Your Way to the Next Level of Your Career. And I'm going to let her give us a little bit of her background. Deborah, why don't you go ahead and jump in and tell us a little bit about uh, the early part of your career and what got you to the point of writing about leadership in the way that you do. Well, just like the audience listening, I was very attuned to doing everything I could for personal and professional development. So I applaud our listeners. You're doing the right thing, and that's what causes you to leap ahead from uh, others. And, uh, you know, I started my career, well, before a lot of the audience was even born. I started (laughs) my company in 1976. Now, I was very young. I was only 22, but I decided that I, I wanted to be my own boss and What's the expression? If you're going to work for a jerk anyway, it might as well be yourself. So, uh, <laughs> Good for my, you. My own <laughs> business. My parents were self-employed, so I, I understood what running your own business was like. And um, starting your own business, though, uh, I advise people, you know, you either make $1 a hundred ways or $100 one way, meaning if you have something that you can make a big splash in a certain way and make that $100, that's great. But starting out, most of us don't. You have to be creative and resourceful and innovative and come up with 100 ways to make $1. Exactly. I call that selling selling pencils instead of selling airplanes. Okay, and that's it exactly. And so uh, what that led me to do is start uh, speaking because that was one of those ways. Also doing executive coaching, and actually we didn't call it coaching then. We called it consulting. Now the buzzword is coaching. But uh, And then also writing because, you know, you publish or perish. If you, if you want to stay current, if you want to stay relevant, you have to continually research. And if you're going to research, you might as well write. So really I've spent the last 30 years uh, giving keynote speeches and training uh, workshops and that kind of thing to companies and associations. Uh, doing one-on-one executive coaching and then writing so that I stay current, like like you do. Uh, you and I have been around a long time, and, right. and we know we have to, to fight to stay relevant and avoid becoming invisible as we become older women and, and things like this. So Exactly. Uh, I love, though, some of your early titles. Uh, one book that, that you wrote back uh, in the early 90s, Lions Don't Need to Roar, Using Leadership Power of Professional Presence to Stand Out, fit in and move ahead. And, you know, our audience is largely women, although not exclusively. Uh, through the Executive Girlfriends Group, we have got many women who are business owners as well as those who are in middle and senior management. Um, but so many have, have not been able to move ahead because they try to roar. They try to be the lion like they think the man is, is in that role. So, you know, breaking that $100,000 uh, salary barrier is another key one. And, and another book that you have is the $100,000 Club, How to Make a Six-Figure Income. And, you know, I'll never forget the day that I moved into that. And then when I moved 
out of corporate life and got into consulting and figured out I could actually make that in way less time <laughs> consulting. And, and so that has been a real epiphany uh, for me. And, uh, you know, and then you've got other books about how to act like a CEO and, and, you know, the secrets of a CEO's coach, which gives us that insider view of, you know, the people who are actually cheering on uh, those individuals who have made it uh, to that C-suite. Well, it's been an interesting ride. <laughs> and, and as I listen to you talk about those books, I say, oh, that's way cool. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like reading reading your own LinkedIn page. I think, wow, I've done all those things. Or thinking, man, I need to do more things. Uh, when you yes. Reading others LinkedIn pages. So that's but, true. Well, I always tell people reading my uh, LinkedIn page will not only exhaust you; it will leave you believing that I can't hold down a job. But it's because I've been consulting for 18 years, and I include all of my consulting uh, agreements uh, as if I had worked for the company. So uh, it's just a know, different really, way to portray you yourself. Each was each one was an interview. Each one was a going on board process. You bet. Each one was producing results, and each one was leaving for the next opportunity. And yes. so that's not a bad way to look at it. So Deborah, I'd like to jump right in to the CEO difference because it it isn't uh, the fact that you know people are born to be a CEO, although some are better than others. But it does start with differentiating your thinking. And so I'd like for you to, to start by laying the groundwork of what is the difference in how a CEO thinks about themselves, about others, and, and how they work together. Well, first of all, I want to make something clear. In fact, I just posted a blog post on this. Sometimes people say to me, uh, they see the word CEO in my uh, titles, and they think, oh, but I don't want to be a CEO. And I say, why not? That's the best job, whether it's your own company or working in, in, toward you know, a career where you uh, get promoted into that. That's the job where you can make a difference. That's the job where you can choose the choices uh, and the decisions you want to live under. That's the choice. That's the job where you get to be around the people you want. That's the job you get to make a difference. So I don't want the audience to think, oh, I don't want to be a CEO. I'm happy to be you know, the bridesmaid type of thing. Right. No, go for the top job. But even if you don't want to or couldn't be, say, the CEO of GE, if that's who you work for, because it's just the chances might be very slim, you are the CEO of your family, of your life, of your department, and that's how you have to look at it. Right. So when I study what CEOs think and act and do to be more effective and set themselves apart, it's as much for what they do as what you can do right here, right now, regardless of your title. Right, and I love the book that you wrote in 2009, CEO Material, How to Be a Leader in, a, in Any Organization, as well as in your home. I think that's a really good point. But imagine what would happen if the women who are attending meetings you know, with the executives of the company actually had a badge that they wore that said CEO material. And I think this is what we're talking about in changing their feeling about who they are. That, you know, maybe we should do like undershirts that, that uh, women could wear underneath their business clothes that says CEO material. 
I love it. I love it. I can already see the T-shirts, and uh, that might be <laughs> Definitely. a merchandising thing you and I have to do. And and you know what? It's one thing whether one wears the badge or or not, but one can. I mean, whether one has a physical badge, but one can have a persona badge. Yes. All right. You look. Uh, the whole gist of CEO material was uh, one. That is the only job in a company that is truly a generalist, where you are responsible and aware of and knowledgeable and have input about everything. Every other job is a specialist job that takes you a route to the CEO job. So my point with that book was learn, think like a generalist all the way up, because one, you will get there sooner, Two, you will last longer. And three, they will see you in that role. So even though we don't have the badge, uh, you can look at You look at with your demeanor, your comportment, pacing, a little thing like keeping a, a, an open, relaxed expression on your face versus a grimace or a frown. A little right. thing like keeping your head level versus tilted to the side like a sympathetic mother. little thing like slowing down when you talk or walk or enter a room or answer a question. The more time you give yourself, the more status people give you. There's some physical things you can do to look like the leader, the stereotypical leader that men have simply been better at because they're better actors, because they had coaches earlier on in life who taught them. <laughs> right. Um, so part of it is theatrics. Part of it is your attitude, your attitude towards yourself, your attitude towards others, um, the, uh, the, the thought that, you know, I'm enough in what I bring right. to the table. I'm adequate. Uh, and I well, and that's that. what self-confidence is, and, and building that lifelong self-esteem is something that we should start with our girls when they're teenagers, right, to uh, teach I, them. I, I correct you, when they're two months old. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, I've got a teenage daughter, so, so the, the teen years are near and dear to my heart. But you're right, you're right. But, but the difference in, in fact, I noticed yesterday, because uh, I'm, I'm in Miami at a client meeting, and at this particular po uh, point in my life, I happen to be way overweight for, for where I want to be. And the, uh, the woman I'm working with is at her lowest weight. She and I have, have worked together for 15 years. And, I mean, she looks terrific. And she, we're about the same age. And, but, you know, as I walked to the bathroom and thinking about how I, how I felt about my body, I just put my shoulders back, and it changed my whole attitude. I thought, you know what? I, I'm, I am competent to be here. I'm competent to be paid what I'm being paid, you know, to do what I'm doing. So that self-confidence um, does have that physical manifestation. And I'm glad you raised those things about the way we tilt our head or the, the, how we sit at a table right. at a meeting, um, you know, versus if you look around and watch what men do, it's, it's so different. Well, and you know, I always say, which is a true fact, we're all insecure to a large degree. Some are just better at camouflaging it. Yes. And, and so that's, you know, that's part of it. Now, that can't be enough. You can't just be an empty suit and, and have a good look. <laughs> although, although we've all seen those. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, 
you and I have seen a few of those in our life, and uh, male and female. Yes, but, yes, we have. <laughs> but it's also how you interact. That's the most important. Being a stellar performer, being a leader, being a star is necessary but not sufficient. You also have to cause others around you to exceed similarly. And right. that's back to my most recent book, The CEO Difference. Uh, what I tried to do in that book was, one, talk to about 100 CEOs and ask, what causes someone to stand out in your eyes? What right. gets your attention, you know, positively from an employee? What did you yourself do to stand out, to differentiate yourself? And I found that there are... 10 or 12 things that you and I can do starting today to stand out from a group of standouts because you right. and I aren't working with, you know, a bunch of, of um, uh, dummies. We're working with smart people. So even, exactly. you know, how do you exceed among exceeders? And so that's, that's the reason for the, the most latest book. And uh, we can talk more about that if, if you want. Yeah, definitely. In fact, uh, the, second thing that you mention in this book is actually about being trusted. And I don't, I, I think that's something we take for granted. Um, maybe because we've never been in a position to lose someone's trust or we've never understood the context of trust and leadership. So can you talk a little bit about the feedback that you got when you were asking those questions. And, you know, if there's a story you can share about any of these, that's always really useful sure. as well. Well, uh, I, can, I can think of direct quotes from CEOs when I'd ask, you know, what causes someone to stand out? And, and I would hear, I want someone I can trust. The person needs to be trustworthy. I've got to be able to put trust in the individual to know I can count on him or her. People have to be able to trust him, right. pat them on the back. She needs to show me a pattern of trust. It went on and on. It was the most frequently used word, trust. Oh, that's and, interesting. And so what that means is, um, you know, it's not even honesty, someone being honest, because honest, honesty is sort of like beauty. It can be in the eye of the beholder. I can think I'm 100% honest about something, and you can differ thinking you're 100% honest. And so trust is really um, a willingness to perhaps be vulnerable, a willingness to ask and not act like a know-it-all, a willingness to tell the truth as you understand it, but understand others have a different truth, too, and not being judgmental to them or towards right. them. You know, it's squishy, but it's one of those things. If you have it, it can make a career. If you don't, in a second, it can break it. Uh, one person said, trust, uh, let's see, what was it? Trust comes in like a buggy and goes out like a Formula One race, tr race car. Right, right. So well, exactly. And, you know, it's so interesting. Um, integrity is really at the heart of what you're talking about. And 
saying what you mean, meaning what you say, doing what you say you're going to do. But you just brought up something that I don't think people normally align with integrity and trust, and that is being open and vulnerable. And I was having a conversation uh, with, with my client. I was actually staying in her home last night. And yesterday I was having a discussion with the investor in her company and um, mentioned uh, something about the bankruptcy process, which uh, you know I have shared openly on, on this show that my husband and I, uh, through a, a large um, business failure a number of years ago, had to file Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And I've always felt like it's important to be open and honest about that, uh, for, simply because, first of all, people can find out about it simply by doing a Google search. But that's not the reason I share it. It's because being able to show that you can go through a business failure and a personal bankruptcy and still be able to be on your feet, you know, continuing to move forward, I think helps people trust you even further. And, and you know, she was saying, oh, you know, you need to be careful about sharing too much and sometimes you're too open. And, and to me, there is no such thing as, as too open because I do want people to trust uh, that I'm telling the truth, even when I'm having to show something about myself that, you know, perhaps other people would be fearful. Right. Well, you know, it's truly not being knocked down. It's getting back up. And, right. And that's everything. And that's the, that's a big differentiator is, you know, being knocked down over and over and over by your own doing or the economy or the <laughs> exactly. government or a but getting back up, getting back up. And right. so that tenacity... Um, that's again, uh, that's a big differentiator that sets people apart. Right, and I think it also leads into the next one, which is being optimistic and easy to get along with. <coughs> uh, Excuse me. You would you would think that's a given. Um, sometimes men and women mistakenly think they have to look stern and serious <laughs> and have no humor and just be talking about business to get business done when in fact they look ridiculous doing that. Right. You can have a good naturedness, an optimistic, a positive perspective. You can see the ha- the glass is half full versus half empty. Uh, if you choose that perspective, Not, neither is true. Okay, it's your perspective. And that's what I try to get across, too, in this book, is that everything is about your perspective. And you manage it. No one can take it away. You own it. It is not that it is living in a, oh, everything is great, everything's wonderful, Pollyanna world, but it's, you know, choosing to see, choosing to pick out what is good in this bad situation. Yes. Okay, from the bankruptcy, one learned what not to do in the future. Okay. Yes. The, uh, one learned how to recover. One learned financially and how to recover one's reputation. One learns how. So you look at the best, you choose the best. That's both in yourself and in others. Because a leader looks for, chooses, focuses on the best in others as opposed to uh, being critical and judgmental. Right, right. No, I love that. And and the next one, I love the way you, you put this one. I, I describe the next one as intellectual curiosity. You use the word clamor, which I love. Clamor for information and insight. And, and that implies that you can't live without it. 
And I love it because you're right. In order to get ahead, one of the first things I look for when I hire people into my new businesses is that intellectual curiosity. Well, I think of a one CEO who put it this way. He said, um, I will fire a person who has no ambition to learn on his or her own, period. Um, it's it's uh, another said, I can find a lot of ambitious, hardworking people, but what I want is creativity, and that comes from curiosity. It's just right. like you said, that intellectual curiosity. Because see, it's a huge turnoff if someone isn't curious. And, and again, everything you need to do to get promoted, to leap ahead, stems from what you can do taking your own initiative. Nothing we've said so far requires some approval, some okay, some budget from a boss. It's something you decide, you know, at this point in time to do until you die. And what a good lesson for that teenager or that two-year-old or the 22-year-old or your subordinate or even your boss. Right. Because you have to live this stuff regardless of whether others around you are, regardless of whether there's a good example or you have a good mentor in it. You Mm -hmm. do it, one, for yourself, two, for the example you set, and, and three, for yourself again, I guess. Oh, exactly. And, you know, it's it's so funny because as, as we move into this second part of the book, which so we've moved from how to change your thoughts. So, you know, what's going on in between your ears has everything to do with with making yourself CEO material, right? But, but the next thing is uh, really how others look at you. So the first is how you look at yourself because you can't, appealing to others until you do that, right? And then the second is how you're differentiating your being. So beginning with looking your best. What What is the the feedback that you got on, on actual physical appearance and looking your best? You know, I'm not one to be an empty suit. I'm not one to say you must show up with the pretty hair and the makeup and the right, you know, stylish and the matching purse. I'm not saying... Uh, it's appearances, you know, you have the perfect alignment in your face. All those things help. Not doing, uh, you know, the the pressed suit instead of looking like you work in a car wash and, and things right. like that, you know, can be a stumbling block. It's, it does not make you. The clothes, your appearance does not make you. The one reason to be conscious of it, though, is because everybody else is. Right. All right. And, and it's simple, and, and you know, there's from from Google search to magazines to uh, a zillion sources out there. Uh, unfortunately, from inexpensive clothes made in Bangladesh, I'm sorry to say, everyone can afford to dress in business, business casual. I'm less concerned with what you wear than how you wear it. Right. You can have a T-shirt on and blue jeans and run into your boss in Walmart on the weekend and still have an executive presence in your comportment, your demeanor, your nature, your posture. Um, so that's why I talk about uh, and write about the, you know, the the physicality that that's part of it. The reality is right. we're all raised on television. There's a look of a a winner that we we want to see, and it's very easy to take that on. Right. 
Now the next chapter is about being a self-starter, and I talk to my teenagers about this all the time. I've got a, a, a 14-year-old son and who is not so much a self-starter naturally, and I've got a 16-year-old daughter who very much is. And, and I think that this is something that we really have to understand the importance. Um, and, and it comes back to what you said about learning, that learning on your own without somebody telling you have to, you have to learn something is, is the difference here. Let me define what I mean by a self-starter. It's someone who doesn't wait, who doesn't procrastinate, who right. looks at what's missing and then does something about it and exactly. does it first. Um, there's a risk. It's scary. If, if you are the one to put your, you know, your, your foot out there first, it, it could be chopped off. But the payback is so big, and it's such a differentiator that right there, taking the initiative when others don't, when others hold back, one thing like that, and that takes seconds to do, can take can have lasting effect for weeks and months and years in your career. I think of um, the smallest thing. Um, one CEO wrote a letter to the then president, is a number of years ago, about you know, his opinion on something. Because he was the CEO of a company, the president, it actually got to him. The president said, hey, we need to find out more about this. Let's start a commission on this, and, and let's appoint this person. He brought it to my attention. Now, yeah, that's at a pretty high level, but it can be something that, you know, you can come to your, go to your boss with, with an idea that you think. It's the old um, in, in years ago, they had a suggestion box, all right? Now you can, you can uh, put it on Facebook or LinkedIn or something out there, but your idea and um, just the fact you took the initiative, people reward that. People reward that because they are hungry for it. Bosses are right. hungry for someone who will step up and not have to wait to be told what to do. Exactly, and uh, that is exactly what I look for when I hire someone. Now, the next one I think is another one, um, is when people actually pour their heart into whatever their craft is. Uh, this chapter is called Pour Your Heart Into Your Art. And we don't always get to work doing what we love. Um, so how, how do you marry those two things of really putting your heart into what you're doing? Well, you set up my answer perfectly. You don't always get to, you don't always love what you do, but you can love the doing, the doing it well part. And, you know, reality is we don't always have the perfect job that makes us want to sing on our way to the office, as Warren <laughs> Buffett says. Um, but you can sing in the way you execute the job, whether it's, you know, digging ditch or flipping a hamburger or doing a sales call uh, for a Tampax company. I mean, you can, um, uh, I guess that's a little joke in there, I don't know. Or <laughs> I should say, uh, working for a politician, that, that'd even be worse, right? <laughs> but anyway, you can love the doing and feel pride in how you do it. And which really leads to the, the next chapter, which is doing a stellar job. Right. A stellar job isn't just getting the T's crossed and the I's dotted and the results done on time on budget. A stellar job is doing it in a way 
that uh, sets an example for others, where you mentor and coach by the way you do it. Um, a stellar job is one that causes you to get the results, but um, helps others get there and meet their results, too. I right. cannot emphasize that enough. A leader makes leaders out of others. So do not mistakenly think that if you make the numbers, if, uh, if you know, you know, uh, um, just, you know, get what's required to do things on time, on budget, that is not sufficient. No. You know, the next one uh, is another one that's near and dear to my heart because uh, I never knew as I was growing up uh, that I was a, a risk taker. Uh, in fact, I would have uh, put myself in, in the totally opposite uh, spectrum. Um, and you have said that taking calculated risks uh, is one of the things that uh, actually helps differentiate you and, and differentiates your actions from others, and that that is a characteristic of a CEO. And some are, are more risk-averse than others or are a CEO in a company that is risk-averse. So maybe you can help um, our listeners understand how you can take calculated risks in a risk-averse company or a risk-averse culture. Or if you don't think you're a risk-taker, how can you be more likely to take those calculated risks? What does that take? Well, one, in a risk-averse company, you still have to do it. Maybe you do it in baby steps versus giant leaps, but, you know, tip your toe in the water type of thing. See, this is what's funny to me, uh, odd sometimes. I talk to young women who are triathletes or do the Spartan man or uh, mud fudder or fud mudder or something race where, you know, they crawl through barbed wire and right. jump through mud holes and things like this or bungee jump off a bridge, you know, and those kind of physical risks are insignificant to me compared to emotional risks, thinking risks, idea risks. Now, it is true, uh, uh, I, I think, you know, factually, some of the physical risks helps you build your courage to do the other things. Yes. But if you're going to choose one, whether it's standing up and speaking out in a meeting when you normally wouldn't versus bungee jump on the weekend, pick the one about the standing up in the meeting, okay? That's going right. to have more payoff. And, you know, all risk is, it means that you, um, you do or think the unpopular thing. You step out of the box. You're, you're, you're unafraid to fall flat on your face, potentially. Right. Uh, so that's all. It, it's, it's not risking your life, risking your love, risking your health. <laughs> right, right. Well, the next one is about communication. And, and CEOs do need to be able to communicate well with a diverse group. And these days, uh, I find the, one of the most challenging things is communicating uh, with people from different generations. Uh, because even you know having teenagers at home where getting everyone just to leave their cell phones behind when we go to dinner is a major thing so that we actually have to look at each other and, and talk um, you know ha has been uh, you know really top of mind with me but there are many different kinds of people that you have to communicate with the frontline people the board um, you know your own direct report so talk to me a little bit about communication and the role as 
a CEO and what makes the difference in your actions? Well, first of all, communication always has and always will be uh, a major issue, all right? I mean, Socrates had an issue with it. But uh, today we even have levels of complication for the reasons you said. You know, you might have a 60-year-old boss who still wants to see you face-to-face. You might have a 40-year-old manager who's willing to accept an email. You might have a 20-year-old or 25-year-old coworker who you know, will possibly answer the phone and you have the the frontline young person who only texts. So right. it's not only communicating in terms of what, uh, but how, yeah. how with the online and the offline. The main thing, if I had to give a summary a thought about what is effective communication is in whatever venue you are using, Think first, what is in it for the person I'm engaging with? What's in it? What would be of interest? What's of benefit? What do they want out of this? If at least you start there versus starting where most people do, this is what I want out of it, well, right there you'll differentiate yourself. I'm not saying you'll always hit the target, but you'll have a better chance if you start out that way. Now, Chapter 11, uh, which is uh, the penultimate chapter of the book, is Don't Be a Sycophant. And, you know, a lot of people don't uh, perhaps even know what that word means, but I'm wondering whether you're talking about the CEO themselves not playing that role or the people who are working for them or wanting to become uh, a a CEO candidate or, as we were talking about earlier, uh, CEO material. You know, a sycophant is really someone who's just a yes man or yes woman or whatever you say. Yes, yes, boss, that's a good idea. That's great. That's great. Um, I'm all for support and positive affirmation if a boss or a colleague or a coworker or a subordinate has a good idea. But if I don't think it is and I have reasons for it, you have to push back. One of the CEOs told me, and he said it this way verbatim, but most of them told me this same thing in their own words. But he said, what catches my eye, what causes someone to get promoted in in my company is someone who will push back. Right. Period. Now, not to ad nauseum, he said, but (laughs) someone who will push back. And uh, I know many situations where two people discussing a situation with the boss, one, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, that's great, that's great. The other one saying, "Mm, I don't know, I think for this reason and that reason, we really need to rethink this. I just don't think it's going to be good for the company. And in a few weeks or a few months, the one who argued is the one who gets promoted, who gets the nod, who gets to lead the venture. So not to ad nauseum and not to do it just to be a pain and not to be a show-off, but if you sincerely don't agree, speak up because you're there for one reason, and that's to contribute. And if the boss hears the same thing that he's just said, you're not really contributing. You can totally be agree. You may be contributing, but you can be uh, done without. They don't need you. <laughs> exactly. Now, you end the book uh, talking about uh, what you've mentioned throughout this whole interview, which is causing others to do well, and that that really is the whole role of the CEO. 
people get promoted for two reasons, or in two ways, let me put it that way, in two ways. That is, they get pulled up from above because someone sees their stellar work, and they get simultaneously pushed up from below because they cause others to do stellar work. If you alone are great in your job, but you have not built your backfill, you will not get promoted because the company doesn't want to leave a void. So you have to be good, but you have to cause others to be good in what they're doing. And that's part of your attitude, how you delegate, how you think, how you correct, how you give feedback, how you critique. It's, um, It's in your humor and good naturedness with the person. It's with your curiosity to learn more about the person. It's really everything we've talked about wraps up into helping you be a better leader and making the next generation of leaders because that's your job and that's who's going to get promoted. Well, Deborah, I love how this book actually gives tangible steps to differentiate yourself and and you know you you are great in your writing style of really provoking us to be our best and and uh, giving us permission to behave differently than maybe we've been taught or maybe even in what we've observed because I, I think so many of us um, have worked in companies with uh, CEOs that were less than stellar um, or that that just weren't the kind of model that we do want to emulate. And I think the other thing that your book provides are are really coping methods for if we aren't comfortable in a situation and and really teaches us how how to take those tips and and turn them into practical uh, ways to live in the world that we live in, which isn't perfect. Well, and thank you. You know, nothing makes me happier than when a reader says, I can open up any page and get an idea to better handle the situation I'm in at that time. And so, you know, that's, uh, that makes me happy. And, and I would like to invite your audience to do this, if you don't mind, Chickie, and that is um, if, they, if something we've discussed causes a question that didn't get answered, you can email me. Say you listened to the conversation and you had a question, email me, Deborah at DebraBenton.com. And if you like the things we talk about, I recently, um, joining the social media world, I recently um, uh, ramped up a, uh, a business, you know, a fan page on Facebook called Deborah Benton Management. And I try to regularly post helpful things that follow on what you and I have talked about. So if people want to go there and, and connect, I'm very happy to do that. That's great. And you also have a blog on your site, so people can just go again to DeborahBenton.com. And, and Deborah, you do also do coaching and speaking, is that correct? I spend a good deal of my time talking to companies, uh, to association meetings, but also one-on-one coaching and I'll be doing a public seminar in 2015 for the first time where people don't have to be part of a, a group or a company. They can come on their own. So if they contact me and, and ask about it, I'll make sure they get information through my website. 
Great. Well, Deborah, thank you so much for giving us your Friday afternoon. And again, her current book is The CEO Difference, How to Climb, Crawl, and Leap Your Way to the Next Level of Your Career. And I encourage you, you can order it on Amazon or, or uh, it is for sale in any of the, the both the online book stores that are popular as well as uh, going to your local bookstore. Deborah, thank you again, and I just hope you have a terrific weekend. And if our listeners want to know anything more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, it is executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. And we also have a public Facebook page as well as a private group for our members. So thank you so much for joining us on this Halloween day, and have a terrific weekend, everyone.